The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Bloomberg Intelligence Talking Transport Podcast. I'm your host, Lee Klaskow, Senior Freight Transportation and Logistics Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, Bloomberg's in-house research arm. We're delighted to have Ian Jeffries, President and CEO of the Association of American Railroads, or AAR, as our guest on the podcast today. Prior to assuming the role on January 1st, 2019, Ian was a Senior Vice President of AAA Government Affairs, where he led the development, promotion, and implementation of legislative priorities for the AAR. Before joining AAR, Ian cultivated more than a decade of experience working within government. From 2009 to 2013, he served as a senior policy advisor to the chairman of the U.S. Senate Committee on Commerce, Science, and Transportation. Ian received his Master's of Science in Public Policy and Management from Carnegie Mellon University and his Bachelor of Science in Economics from the University of Kentucky. So go Wildcats. Welcome to the podcast, Ian. Thanks for having me, Lee. Good to see you. My pleasure. So, uh, you know, the Association of American Railroads may not be a household name for everybody. Can you tell a little about what the organization does and is? Yeah, absolutely. So we are the Railroad Industries Trade Association in Washington, D.C. And what does that mean? It means we represent not only all the the Class 1 railroads, which are the the large railroads uh, that cover the U.S., but also smaller regional short-line railroads. Amtrak's also a member. Um, so we represent really the, the freight rail or the rail voice in Washington, D.C., and whether that's on uh, advocacy issues in front of Congress, whether that's legal issues, whether that's through communications efforts, uh, whether it's through safety standard setting, operational standard setting, um, we are the place to be uh, when it comes to that, and uh, we are the voice of the industry. All right. Great. Uh, I took Amtrak coming down to uh, D.C. We're in our D.C. offices today. You know, what are the the main priorities of the AAR for all those constituents you just mentioned? Well, I think if you want to boil it down to one thing, we want to make sure that the the rail voice is heard. And our our largest members, as I mentioned, are the the freight railroads. And so we want to make sure that the the policy agenda for the freight railroads, which is generally um, being able to operate uh, efficiently, safely, um, being able to earn the revenues necessary to reinvest back into our networks. Most people don't know this, but the nation's freight railroads are almost entirely privately owned and maintained. We make our own investments, about $26 billion a year. So that's very contrary to the U.S. highway system, which is uh, very much publicly funded and subsidized. And so um, we we want to make sure that policies that are enacted by Congress or policies that are enacted by the administration really support our ability to operate to grow, to compete, and to do so safely and efficiently in a way that allows us to serve our customers and communities. Great. And how would you characterize rail demand right now? I would say it's uh, it's kind of 
bebopping along. That's a technical term. Yeah. Um, you know, this year has been been pretty interesting. We really break it down into two big segments. So you've got our, our car loads, which are things like grain, automobiles, uh, auto parts, um, sand, rock, kind of all the industrial products. And then we have intermodal, which is the container traffic that often comes through the ports. That's consumer goods. And so on the on the carload side, it's we're, we're just a little bit up as we head in through the end of the year. Uh, automotive uh, segment has been really strong. Uh, grain has struggled, but it's starting to, to show some signs of improvement here as the year closes out. Um, and then on intermodal, it's been kind of a rocky year. We're down about 5% or so. Um, about 50% of our traffic is intermodal. About 50% is carload. And uh, But on the bright side, over the past month or so, intermodal year over year has shown a pretty decent level of improvement. And so we're we're ready, willing, and able to, to continue to move that traffic as, as demand continues to pick up, hopefully into next year and, and further on. Mm-hmm. And when you're talking about demand, you're talking specifically the U.S., not not Canada, because a lot of lot of your members have operations in Canada and Mexico, right? Yeah, Lee, that's a really good point. So we're the North American Trade Association, okay. we're a North American industry. We've got um, we've got members, Canadian members, some of which have U.S. operations, both CP and CN. Um, but we also have Mexican members as well. So uh, we're very much focused on the North American market and the flow of goods uh, across the the northern and southern border. So um, while we we concentrate. Um, when I talk about traffic and demand, it's typically that within the, the United States. Um, it's very dependent on that cross-border flow as well. Right. You know, one of the things that you know we like about the railroads is the opportunity for modal share gains. Can you talk about like how the rail industry is positioned to win maybe share from trucking and, and what the benefit is to, uh, for shippers? Yeah, absolutely. So I think there are enormous opportunities, and I'm really excited about what we're seeing in the the freight rail market right now. Um, service products are coming online, whether it's uh, one railroad with a, a trucking partner, whether it's multiple railroads combining to provide a service product. What you're seeing is this um, this ability to compete in lanes that maybe railroads weren't traditionally able to compete in competitively or at distances that we weren't traditionally really in a position to compete. I think the number used to be about once you get below 500 miles, it's really difficult for for train to compete with truck. We're trying to really dig into that. And so the opportunity is absolutely there to, to really claw back and claw more of that share. I think in 1819, we were at our, our peak um, intermodal traffic levels. And the goal is not to just get back to that. The goal is to blow through those numbers and, and really uh, build on success. And I, I think we're poised to do that. And you're seeing significant investment in intermodal facilities, especially out west. But again, these, these products that are focused on hyper-responsiveness, over 95% uh, on-time performance, um, predictability, visibility, because that's what our intermodal customers expect and demand. And so that's what we're providing to them. And the opportunities are huge to continue to, to grow. And we're ready for that uh, for that opportunity to take our swings and win that traffic. Right. So it seems like there's two uh, major factors that go into you know whether or not or how quickly the secular demand growth of, uh, of, of modal share comes into play. One is fuel prices uh, and the other is service. Uh, there's really nothing you can do 
or your members can do about fuel prices. At least I don't think they can. Uh, and then there's there's service. So can you talk about you know the rail network as it stands today? Uh, I know there's been a lot of issues with service uh, coming out of the pandemic. You know where are we today? Are we by um, you know where we were before the pandemic? Just talk a little bit about that and and maybe what the industry has to do to further improve upon service. Certainly. So if you look at our primary service metrics, kind of industry-wide service metrics, whether it's uh, velocity, terminal dwell, things along those lines, our metrics have dramatically improved over the past six to nine to 12 months. Um, Mid-pandemic and and coming out of the pandemic, you know, we had kind of a, a Significant challenges across the entire integrated supply chain. I don't think there's any secret about that, whether it uh, was at the ports, whether it was in some of the yards, whether it was a shortage of truckers, long haul, short haul. Um, and so we certainly got got caught in the in the middle of that. And railroads have taken numerous steps over you know the several months. Um, we can't just flip a switch. Um, it takes time to uh, to to bring the folks online that we need to to adequately source demand. Um, upwards of six months sometime from when you you hire on somebody before they're out on the railroad. But through significant sustained efforts of hiring, we've gotten our our operating crafts, our engineers and conductors primarily, um, getting that head count to the right level to sustain demand or sustain service, um, but also to be able to to ride out the ups and downs. I think resiliency is a word that became very much a, a focus word in the industry coming out of the pandemic, because as we saw in the pandemic, you know, we, we had a shock to the system. Um, traffic fell through the floor right. and then kind of unexpectedly came roaring back. And railroads had employed what they had been doing for decades, which is when you, you don't have the demand, you temporarily furlough your, your folks. And when the demand comes back, you call them back when you have the, the business there. Well, when we called them back, what used to be mid 90 percent return rates dropped down to 50 percent return rates. And so um, we got caught playing catch up on on headcount in certain parts of the country. And we've we've made the progress we need to 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 meet the demand for today. But I think railroads have been very clear that they're going to be very um, pragmatic and, and cautious about when and how. Um, to, to make adjustments to workforce because you want to be ready for that traffic when it comes back. And so building in resiliency, being able to ride out the ups and downs of traffic has allowed us to uh, get our service to a level that uh, is dramatically improved. Um, we're always looking to make it even better because, again, if we're going to grow that intermodal market share, it's got to be uh, you know, almost perfect. And um, through operational changes, through additional investments, through appropriate hiring, where railroads do continue to hire in certain areas, we positioned ourselves to, to provide that service that's going to be needed. Right. So, you know, when you think of service in the rail industry, you know, I think of precision scheduling railroading, uh, PSR, uh, for those that don't know, it's pretty much Six Sigma for the rail industry. Uh, it's been kind of like a, a polarizing philosophy. Um you know, uh, as a as an analyst, you definitely see the benefits of PSR to uh, railroads that are implementing it. Uh, you're seeing more and more U.S. railroads implement it. Uh, you know, Union Pacific, their new CEO, Jim Venna, he's a, a PSR veteran. Um, could you talk about the benefits of PSR and, and maybe what, what, you know, some reports out there are getting wrong about uh, its impact uh, to, to, to railroads and to service and to safety? Sure, absolutely. And I think that term... PSR gets 
probably thrown around a lot and maybe uh, at times has become a, a moniker um, for, for anything somebody you know, was upset with the railroads about. Right. Um, but I would, I would venture to guess that if you, you press somebody, okay, well, what does is, what is the term PSR mean? That they might be challenged to, uh, to articulate that. But if you look at kind of the, the core high-level tenants, and one, every, op- every railroad operates its own network to, to meet its, its customer makeup, its demand structure, its terrain geography, et cetera. And so uh, there is no one-size-fits-all operating plan, so to speak. Um, but if you look at some of the core tenants around PSR, it's reliable, predictable service, timely service, efficient use of assets, running a safe railroad, uh, maximizing um, uh, employee productivity. It's my, my point being, it's core tenants that, on the face of it, pretty much any industry or any company in any industry is is trying to, to implement. You want to make the best use of your assets, you want to provide a good service product, and you want to do it safely and efficiently. And so at, at the face of it, those are pretty understandable goals. Right. And so um, I think every high-performing business is, is striving for those goals and implementing um, various steps to reach those goals. Can you talk about safety? You know, in East Palestine, the, uh, the Norfolk Southern uh, derailment uh, garnered a lot of headlines. Can you talk about you know, what the industry maybe is doing to, A, ensure that something like that doesn't happen again, uh, and B, just to improve the incremental safety of, uh, of the North America rail network. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Well, I think it's important that you take, we take a step back and understand that, that, first and foremost, that rail is by far, by orders of magnitude, the safest way to move any type of good over land, especially when it comes to moving hazmat. Um, but as we've seen, as, as rare as a significant incident is, when an incident does occur, it can have a dramatic impact on the community um, in which it occurs. And so railroads have to learn from every incident that occurs to reduce the likelihood of a future incident. And certainly uh, East Palestine was, was evidence of that. Um, um, very dramatic impact on a community. And so we've got to take lessons learned. Now, the important thing, one of the important things is that the National Transportation Safety Board is doing its investigation. Those are the world preeminent experts on transportation safety matters. And so we're, we're, we'll all await the, the final outcome of that report with their findings and any recommendations that we might be able to put into practice. In the meantime, uh, railroads aren't just kind of sitting on our hands, you know, waiting for, for others to tell us what to do. And we have taken a number of steps this year. So first and foremost, um, if there's an incident, we want to make sure that first responders have the information they need, the tools they need, and the knowledge they need to respond safely to mitigate and minimize the impact on a community. And um, we've developed software um, and tools that allow a first responder to identify the contents of a train as it's moving through its community, if there is hazmat on that train, and if there is a spill, how to respond and who to contact. Well, we're really thrilled that we've been able to, in the past nine months, expand access to this this software application to about 2.3 million first responders. That's dramatically higher than where we were at the beginning of 2023, and we'll continue to broaden that exposure. So again, first responders have the tools they need to safely respond and partner with us as we mitigate an incident should one occur in their community. Um, we've also taken steps on uh, wayside detection units. And so for, for the listeners that don't know what wayside detectors are, those are, those are pieces of technology put along the, uh, along the rail line that, that 
take measurements, they do detections, inspections to a train as it's moving by. So right. checking the health of the train in various ways. Um, and, and one of those types of detectors is a, called a hot box detector that's literally taking the temperature of wheels as they go by because as bearings begin to fail, the wheels get hotter and that can lead to a derailment, which is what um, we believe and understand was the primary cause of the derailment in East Palestine. And so railroads have, have gotten together. There, there's no regulatory requirement. We've done all this voluntarily, put up this nationwide network of detectors. Um, but we've established new criteria for temperature thresholds for if a wheel gets to a certain temperature, the train gets pulled out of service immediately, or various trending analyses. So if, it, if, a, if a wheel temperature is showing you know, a quick upward spike pulling the train out. Um, and so things along those lines, we're, we're adding more detectors to uh, the nationwide network after doing a, a, a gap analysis, identifying areas that, that maybe spacing was insufficient between different types of detection. Um, and so at the end of the day, it's important that, that we continue to take steps as an industry because we, we can't afford to, to sit around and, and wait for the government or, or wait for the regulator to decide when it's time to, to require something if we know there are steps we can take now that will have a positive safety impact. And so that's what we're doing every day. Right. And, and we are in D.C. And, and, and you guys are a trade group. So, you know, I know there's some bills in, in Washington right now about uh, rail safety. Could you talk about uh, maybe a little bit about those bills and, and what the AAR maybe supports and maybe is uh, – kind of would like to see changed? Absolutely. So you're right. There are numerous, you know, handful of different pieces of legislation that have been introduced in the House and Senate. Um, there is a bill in the Senate that's um, gotten most of the attention and uh, is, a, is a priority for uh, the Ohio Senate delegation. Um, and we've worked very hard to, to try to, to be a, a productive part of that process. Um, we think it's important that uh, um, we look for ways to uh, to be supportive or provide feedback to, to help make a piece of legislation have the desired outcome. Um, and we think there's absolutely space for a you know, common sense targeted piece of legislation that, that all stakeholders can support and, and push to get across the finish line. Um, at the moment, you know, the, the bill in the Senate has, uh, has a few things that we think need continued work. There are plenty of other things we can support, whether, again, it's first responder notification information, whether it's some sort of federal nexus around wayside detection, um, whether it's uh, additional rules around certain types of uh, trains that are carrying a significant amount of hazmat. We think that it makes sense to, to take a look at that sort of thing. Absolutely. And there's a way to do that, that that is data-driven, that is pragmatic, and is results-oriented versus inputs-oriented. Um, and so we'll see where that legislation goes. But that's why it's important to us in the meantime to continue to evaluate what we can do to continue to get safer, um, because we can't wait on Congress to act. Um, anyone who's waiting on Congress to act on anything often is waiting for a long time, hmm. um, as we've seen and continue to see. But also, even though the, the regulator has authority to do most of the things that are in the, the Senate rail safety bill right now, um, you know, we can't wait on the regulator either. The regulatory process is very slow. So if there are data-supported things that make sense to us that will have a positive impact on safety, we're going to look to do those um, whether or not there's a requirement there or not. Right. And one of your regulators is Surface Transportation Board. Yes. Um, there's been uh, some hearings recently uh, at the STB about uh, about um, 
reciprocal switching. Mm-hmm. Uh, what What is uh, AAR's position on reciprocal switching? Or maybe can you just also uh, explain basically what reciprocal switching sure. is to yeah. our listeners? If there's one thing uh, the STB, the Surface Transportation Board, specializes in, it's in you know, non-simple things. So, yeah. um, uh, so reciprocal switching in a, a very high-level nutshell is when when one railroad opens up its facilities for a competing railroad to to access. Right. Um, so you know, Lee has a has a, a a line of tracks, and there's a customer there. And I wish. Yeah, he allows <laughs> he allows me to to access that to serve that customer. Right. And so, what the board has been um, contemplating for some years now is, you know, we call it forced access, whether it can be compelled to require a railroad to allow a competing railroad access for a customer. And um, there there had been a proposed rule on the books since 2016 that would have allowed the board, you know, largely unfettered ability to just order one railroad to open up its line to another. Um, and to us, that was, you know, an absolute disaster of a proposal because, as we mentioned earlier, Railroads invest their own money, their own capital uh, to serve their customers. And if I know at any given moment uh, a regulator could require me to allow you to serve my customers, um, it it could result in a a real disincentive to make those investments that are necessary. And on top of that, adding switches adds complexity to the system. It adds risk to the system. And we're trying to take that out of the network. And so the board very wisely – um, throughout the 2016 rule, uh, threw it in the garbage can. We think that was a very prudent, wise move by the board and has a new proposal that's really based on service and sets up some, some conduct standards so that if a railroad is not providing a level of service that, um, that its customer needs and it's, it's within its own power, deemed within its own power, so you know, taking out things like natural disasters, et cetera, the board has the ability to order that railroad that is not adequately serving its customer uh, to open up its line to a competing railroad if it has the ability to take on that that business and and provide good service. And so the devil's in the details. These proposals are very long, um, but we think, okay, you know, that makes some sense. We want to provide good service. The board wants us to provide good service. Our customers want us to provide good service. And so if a railroad is failing to do that within its own power, then there might be a, a good argument to be made that that it should have to open up and allow a competing railroad to come in. The board is churning through what are thousands of pages of comments from both sides about you know changes that that might be able to be made to to make the proposal make more sense. Um, but we're going through the process, and I expect the board will issue a final rule you know first quarter of next year. the The chairman of the Surface Transportation Board has been. Um, very adamant and very diligent about consensus in his decisions and major decisions for the board. And the board's made up of five very smart, very independently minded individuals. And so um, it's a it's a kudos to him that this proposal was a unanimous decision, and I'm sure he wants to keep it that way. And so I think any changes he makes will be made in a way that, that keeps everybody on board. And it's worth noting, Canada, they have um, they have some rules on reciprocal switching that goes on today. Very, very little uh, freight uh, is actually moved via reciprocal switching. So it'll be interesting to see what ends up playing out in the U.S. and, and what kind of impact it has on, on not only service, but also uh, the rail's uh, ability to, um, you know, provide 
provide good service. I guess really that that that's where where and that's where the, the goal at the end of the day for right. everybody, right? Right. You know, you you mentioned that the railroads you know have to pay their own way in terms of their own own. Um, uh, infrastructure, you know, they're sometimes forced to do th- do so. Uh, positive train control was something that was mm-hmm. mandated mm-hmm. Uh, by the U.S. government. Can you talk about what that is, and you know, were there any benefits? Because it was it was a huge cost for the it rail was. industry. Certainly. So, positive train control is a technology. It's um, it's a fail-safe technology, overlay technology that um, really can help prevent some of the most catastrophic types of incidents that, that could occur. And so that means you know, head-on collisions, that means overspeed, that means running signals. And, and, and what the technology does is if, uh, if a train is overspeed or, or runs a signal, um, it, it automatically shuts the train down. And so if, a, if an engineer is, is not missing direction or something, that, that override shuts the train down, doesn't allow it to proceed. Um, and so, absolutely, it reduces risk in the system um, from as rare, very rare as, as they are and worse, you know, potentially catastrophic incidents. Uh, you're right. It, it was an unfunded mandate to the tune, I believe, of about $12 billion. Um, but since the end of 2018, railroads have been fully implemented on PTC. It's on about 60,000 miles of our, our mainline networks, um, basically over any line that moves uh, passenger or hazardous materials, um, and even beyond that a little, but that was the regular or the statutory mandate. Um, and so PTC is mature, and absolutely there are, I think, other benefits that railroads are, are looking at and, and, and uh, uh, implementing that will create more efficiency, um, looking at how to leverage what is basically a 60,000 mile 5G network that right. we built out. And so, of course, that's going to provide lots of opportunities for exploration about how do you you know, improve safety in other ways and how do you improve business operations as well. So, I'm assuming it, it makes the, the addition of those hotbox that you mentioned easier and, and, and it may, lets it communicate with uh, the central command easier because of that 5G network. Yeah, it's absolutely a game changer when it comes to communicating with what's going on out on the network. So um, like any, I think any sensible businesses, you're, you're taking advantage of this and, and looking to see, again, how you can further improve safety or make additional business improvements as well to better serve your customers. And when people, uh, you know, think about transportation, uh, usually the, the fact uh, that, you know, um, one might be greener than the other really doesn't come into play in many people's mind. But the reality is, is the rail industry is uh, a, a better, uh, op, you know, a, a better, a, a better for shippers if they're looking to reduce their o- overall carbon footprint. Can you talk about, you know, the rail's ability to do that? Absolutely. And that's becoming more of a, a marketing tool, I imagine, as well as, as customers look to, to decrease their overarching uh, carbon footprint, we can be a key part of that. You know, if you if you want to reduce emissions in the transportation sector right now, take trucks off the highway, put them on the railroad, you get a 75% decrease in emissions. Um, we, we have this old saying that just has the benefit of being true. Um, it's updated every year, but you can move one ton of freight about 500 miles on one gallon of diesel. So, we're emissions efficient, we're incredibly fuel efficient, and of course, all the associated environmental benefits that come from there. And so absolutely, that's it's not only good for the environment, it's good for our customers, it's good for society. And railroads will continue to look for ways to further reduce uh, their use of fuel. Fuel's our number two 
largest uh, cost in the industry. And so we're absolutely looking at battery electric power, hydrogen power, increased increased use of biofuels, um, really uh, exploring all the all the options out there um, in a way to to continue to drive down our environmental footprint um, for all the reasons I mentioned. On top of that, in, in our yards and in our facilities, there are opportunities. So whether it's, uh, you know, moving to zero emissions cranes or electric cranes or reducing idling of even trucks waiting to pick up containers in our intermodal yards, you know, it's a, it's a broad portfolio of steps um, some may be singles, doubles, triples, home runs, but it takes all the different steps to to make continual improvements to your uh, to your emissions profile. But but even today, to our earlier conversation about growing that market share and that truck competitive traffic, the more we can pull onto the rail off the highway, the better impact we'll have on reducing emissions. Right, and I know some of your members are looking at alternative fuels. Mm-hmm. Uh, for, uh, for, for driving locomotives. Yep. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so we've had a couple railroads who put battery electric, hybrid battery electric locomotives out in revenue service. Um, we have a partnership between two other railroads who are developing hydrogen-powered locomotives to put into revenue service. Um, and even simpler things like re- increasing the amount of biofuels into our mix, um, reducing friction on uh, uh, between wheel and rail. Um, but so... Any number of activities going on out there, and that'll only continue. Right. And, and another uh, major cost besides fuel is labor. Uh, labor has been in the headlines all of this year, uh, you know, whether it's the railroads, UPS, what have you. Um, you know, the, the rail industry had some uh, new contracts um, ratified this year. And, and one of the interesting things that came out of it, I think for a lot of people that aren't familiar with the rail industry, uh, even for people that cover the rail industry, is that, um, you know, sick days were added. Mm-hmm. Could you talk about, you know, um, how they operated before and how they're operating now and what that change means for the industry, if anything? Sure. Um, so so the last bargaining round, which which did come to a, a final conclusion almost almost exactly a year ago, um, it was a it was a long, challenging, arduous round. You know, a good chunk of it occurred during the pandemic and then right. coming out of the pandemic. Um, and you know, I think one of the things we learned near the the end of the round um, was that quality of life issues um, really rose to prominence as a key priority for a lot of our employees. Because it's a tough job. They're outside. Absolutely. It's, it's 24-7. 24-7, 365. Um, all weather. So, you know, these are tough jobs. Now, they're very well compensated jobs as well. You know, average wages and benefits, $160,000, some of the best retirement, some of the best health care. But our employees said, look, we we value all of that, but work-life balance and and making sure, um, you know, we can take sick time off. Um, Now, some of our unions had negotiated and maintained a set number of sick days. Others had had negotiated those away rounds ago for for other benefits. But um, the round ended, and and we made clear that, um, look, different railroads with different employees um, have uh, different value sets or different priorities. So we're going to continue the conversation at the local level. And at the local level means railroad by railroad, union by union. I'm pleased to say at this point, I believe we're in the high 90s percentile as far as uh, covered employees with some sort of sick leave agreement. Right. Scheduling agreements in place for a set number of days on, set number of days off. So 
really modernizing the, the way our employees are working, and that's the expectation. And we've got to continue to evolve to make these jobs attractive. Okay. So is there anything that's going on in the rail industry or uh, that, that keeps you up at night in your position at the AR? Well, certainly you, you're always focused on safety, and you are always um, want to make sure that, you know, even – sitting in my role in Washington, D.C., that, that our employees are going to work and coming home safely every day, that we're operating as safely as possible through our communities. Um, and so that's that's always going to be the priority. That's always going to be the, the front of mind focus. On the on the more business side, you know, we're, we're moving a lot of traffic across the northern southern border. Um, the ability to, to, to keep goods moving safely and securely uh, across the borders is, is really critical right now, especially with the influx of nearshoring and onshoring that we mm-hmm. have seen and, frankly, are going to continue to see. And just at the end of the day, it's data-driven, smart, pragmatic regulations. Um, you know, we want to be in a partnership with our regulator, uh, incentivizing technological deployment, while at the same time striking that right balance with our employees to evolve those jobs as well. And so um, there's a lot of issues on our plate at all times. I'll just I'll just say that. Right. That Mexican cross-border business should be a nice tailwind for the industry for, uh, for, for years to come. So, you know, just uh, is there a, a book on railroading that, you know, you you kind of like, you would recommend people to read if, if they want to learn more about the industry? Well, a couple a couple things come to mind there. Um, you mentioned from the outset, I, I was fortunate enough to, to go to Carnegie Mellon University for my graduate work, obviously named after Andrew Carnegie. Um, you know, there's some pretty darn interesting bios about him, and certainly he played a role in the rail industry uh, many, many moons ago. Um, very fascinating individual, huge impact. Um, there's also a really good one about, uh, it's called, I think, Last Train to Paradise, and it's about Henry Flagler and uh, the the uh, the rail line to, to Key West, which I don't think lasted very long. Um, <laughs> they got hit by a hurricane, and, and that was that. But there's any number of great books out there. As you know, railroading is woven into American history and part of the American tapestry. Yeah, one of my favorites is the little engine that could. Even it, that, it you might know, be not, lifelong it, lessons. Yeah, there. it certainly is. I remember my parents reading me that one. Well, I think that's all the time we have. Well, that was a great conversation. Uh, thanks for your time, Ian. Yeah, absolutely, Lee. Thanks for having me. All right, and I also want to thank you for tuning in. If you like the episode, please subscribe and leave a review. We've lined up a number of great guests for the podcast. Check back to hear conversations with C-suite executives, shippers, regulators, and decision makers within the freight transportation markets. Also, if you have any idea for future episodes, please hit me up on the terminal or on Twitter at Logistics Lee. Thanks, everyone. Be safe out there. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.